Week 4, Session 2. Enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Our need for grace. How does God bring people to an abundant life? How would he work in you? What would that look like? Those questions may have been in your mind in various forms since you've been journeying through this material. You may also have been wondering why you haven't got there yet and why we have had to go through such a long path to get to this place where forward motion starts. Some of the answer lies in the first half of the process, repentance. So far, that is essentially all we've looked at, identifying where thoughts, attitudes and actions must change and choosing to deconstruct lies. Deconstruction is the messiest phase of any renovation. It exposes old support frameworks and even previously unknown pests that have been hiding. But enough of that. It is time to move forward to learn how to walk in faith in the way Jesus meant it. Hopefully you are on the disciples' path, hungry for God, longing for his righteousness more than any counterfeit that Satan has tempted you with in the past. Satan is the king of the quick fix, spiritual junk food. He offers us instant and mostly temporary fixes for desires that should find their satisfaction in God. Proverbs 27.7 says, He who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet. When our hungers are focused on spiritual junk, we fail to hunger for real sustenance, the honey of God. But when we are hungry for Him, even the relatively bitter process of stripping away lies can be sweet. Blessed are you who hungers for righteousness, for you will be filled, and then filled, and filled again. King David said it was like having our souls satisfied with the richest of foods. Paul taught that the experience of God's love is to be filled with the fullness of God himself. The cultivation of that hunger is part of our responsibility. God doesn't invade your will. He doesn't impose himself on you. But he does continually invite you to come to him. He does long for you to become closer to him in order that you can find abundant life. Hebrews 11.6 says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He will walk with us if we consciously choose to keep in step with him. We step, he empowers. He guides, we listen. He moves, we follow. Theologians liken it to a dance where two people are intertwined and even move as one. God has the lead. He has the strength. We just keep in step. In the message version of Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Walk with me, work with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Grace has a rhythm. It is natural, seasonal, and unhurried. Empower, then rest. Extend, then recreate. Grace has power and provision. The first element of an environment of growth is grace, because without it, we can't do anything. Yet grace still works within the cosmic dance. Grace doesn't work in isolation. We must learn to be receivers and embracers of the many facets of grace. Grace is more than forgiveness, although forgiveness is a form of grace. Grace is more than God's favor or spiritual riches, though they too are a form of grace. Grace was not a word invented by the New Testament writers, though they used it to describe this dynamic of our dance with God. 
In their day, grace was a term used to describe an external influence that brought about change within. It was receiving something you previously did not have nor could provide for yourself and appropriating it in a way that brought change to the receiver. Some call grace God's empowering presence, his power to equip, to cover, to compensate, to grow, and to influence. That may shed light on why the word is used in so many settings in the New Testament. His forgiveness and mercy come through grace, and they bring about a change in our heart. As we know, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, and the powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit are called grace gifts. They are God's manifest power working through us to bring about edification to the body and witness to the world. They are a form of grace. God pours his grace into hands that are open and hearts that are sincerely hungry. Walking in Agreement Amos 3.3 simply states, Two cannot walk together unless they agree. Galatians 5.25 teaches us that to live by the power of the Spirit means to keep in step with the Spirit. This is the rhythm of grace, striding without striving. To walk in agreement means there is a commonality of viewpoint. Gideon was stuck in the winepress because he disagreed with God about who he was and what God wanted to do. As he found out, we can get out of step through both action and inaction. Doing nothing can be doing something wrong if God is looking for an active partner. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, We quench the work of God's Spirit by neglecting His prophetic words. You can begin to see how a passive approach to spirituality, where our attitude is one that waits for God to initiate transformation, blaming a misguided view of predestination or God's sovereignty, that is an abdication of our role as sons and daughters of God. And so... God's grace is powerful, but looking for active partners. This point is being pressed now because once we begin to see the potential and power of grace in a hungry world, we can become enamored by it, losing touch with our role as partners in grace. Gideon provides many teaching points on how our mindsets can get in the way. His first mistake had been assuming God wasn't interested in making things better. This results from a blueprint worldview that assumes whatever happens in life must be in God's plan because it happened on his shift. The logic is, God didn't intervene, so he must have wanted it that way. It's not a very logical paradigm, but it is very popular and discounts the power of our own choice and the effects of the fall and the battle we are supposed to be fighting with a determined enemy. To take it to its natural conclusion, if everything that happens is what God wants, then you don't have the power to choose anything. But that's not consistent with Scripture, where he has said clearly what his will is, morally and directionally. Yet you and I routinely contradict God's purposes for our lives. Could that be what God wants? Not if he has instructed us in the opposite. We need to differentiate between what is God's will, that which is the realm of the Father and beyond our understanding, and what God wants, which he has exemplified in the life of Jesus which he has taught us in Scripture and empowers us to do through the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is one that is committed to living out what God wants and leaving the unfathomable mysteries of his will to the Father. Our limited minds can't grasp the ways of God fully. Gideon thought God had abandoned Israel, that his love was fickle. 
but God is love. It is not something he turns on and off, choosing to love sometimes and not others. Love is God's very nature, and it's impossible for him not to love you, and extravagantly at that. Our view of that becomes distorted when we view circumstances through these murky lenses. We lose faith in his character because we think he let us down. Why didn't he intervene to prevent a young child losing their parent? Why did he let the young married lose their job and then their house? Why do a thousand other things happen every day just like they always have? The presumptions there are twofold. Firstly, that it is God's fault that it happened. And secondly, that God's best provision is always circumstantial. Reflect for a moment on Jesus' statement in John 16.33, as he was pre-warning the disciples that a season of trial was on its way. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The corrupted world and the prince thereof are the bringers of trouble. God's desire for the disciples, and for us still, is that we live in the Genesis 1 level shalom peace no matter what the circumstance. Circumstantial hardship was coming for Jesus when he said these words, and Jesus knew it. He didn't like it or want it, but it was coming anyway. And yet, his will could still be fulfilled. The kingdom is found firstly in our hearts. God's peace is not reliant on visible outcomes, but it always overcomes. It is not circumstantial, it is foundational, underlying and underpinning. We overcome when we are positioned in a way that nothing in the world exists that can take away our peace, because nothing in the world gave it to us. It comes from inside, from Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you want to know God's will for you, then look directly at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you think God is waiting to judge or neglect you, can you see that in Jesus? No, he always invited people to life. He always forgave, always loved. He isn't happy with your hardship. He weeps just as you do, but he still offers grace and peace. Empowering Presence Grace gives you what you can't give yourself. We couldn't earn God's favour and forgiveness, yet he gave it at an unthinkable cost. When we consider God's ability to transform our lives by healing our hearts and minds, we recognise that we come to him unable to help ourselves. If we could, we would have done so long ago. We need him to work in us. We need him to set the captives free. Part of the command to go in the strength we have in this context, is to turn to him daily, agreeing that he loves us, agreeing that we are valuable to him, agreeing to see things his way, to open our hands and hearts to receive. It is not much work really, but it positions us through agreement. A participant of this course once commented, I have been waiting for most of my life for God to change these difficult people around me so I could love them. But once I realized that God loved them, it was my responsibility to love regardless of what they did to me. I found an unreasonable love I couldn't explain. That is what grace can look like. 
God gives us the power to do his will in his way when we set our minds in that direction. God knows we would like circumstances to change for the better, and there is a battle for all Christians to fight in passionately inviting his intervention in powerful ways. But while that battle is raging, there is a victory that has already been won, a prize that is available to be taken. That is the ability to live in overcoming peace. The Apostle Paul came to realize this. He was suffering under what he called a messenger of Satan, a thorn in his flesh. It is possibly a case of blindness or some other ailment that he attributed to the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see that he prayed for God to intervene. But in that instance, or for that period, God needed this writer of theology to live out the victory within, to find freedom despite Satan, to overcome the world. God's reply was to provide his empowering presence to enable him to break through. God said, My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 In other words, the fact that you are weak right now will demonstrate all the clearer that the joy and peace you receive is not reliant on the world or what it can dish out. The word sufficient there meant perfect fit. It was a term used for the large plug soldiers would put into a city wall that had been breached by an enemy. It had to fit snugly, going into each jagged corner, meeting every need, otherwise it was incomplete and offering opportunity for new attack. God's grace for you is a perfect fit. It is sufficient. It is just what you need to find life in the midst of a battle that can't be seen nor fully understood. What's at stake in your own battle is more than your personal comfort, although we all want things to be more comfortable. What's at stake is the answer to a cosmic question that has been resounding since Satan was cast out of heaven. Is God enough? Is God enough on his own without life going to our plan? Satan says no. He tried it on Job, claiming he only blessed God because of his circumstances. He tried it on Paul as he sat in prison praying for comfort. He tried it on John the Baptist who sat in prison awaiting execution. When it looked like he was going to be stuck there, John's disciples asked Jesus, Are you who you say you are, or should we look for someone else? Jesus reminded them of all the miracles being done, then challenged John, Blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. Matthew 11.6 Jesus was saying to John, I am certainly God and I love you, but don't reject me because the world has given you trouble. I am enough for you. Satan will try the same ploy on you. Do you only engage fully and faithfully and joyfully with God when life works out well, or is God himself enough for you? Are his presence and provision what you need, or do you need the trappings as well? What has been your messenger from Satan in this life? What has not gone to plan? What has he stolen, killed, or destroyed? Has it also robbed you of life within? Well, it is time to take it back. It is not too late. Life is on offer and life can be grasped. God's grace is sufficient and it is there for you now to grab hold of more and more. Your journal. The Hebrews 12 cloud of witnesses cheers us on as we persevere in faith, allowing God to meet our needs in the most perfect way. Meditate, remember, remind yourself of the times when it was God that got you through. 
and you'll have faith to rejoice like Paul that God's grace is profoundly sufficient. Is God enough for you? Where, when, and how has he proven to be sufficient?